and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And the title of our message tonight is The Love Chapter. You said, Pastor, I thought that was 1 Corinthians 13. Well, we come to this final uh, chapter of the book of Hebrews. And uh, actually, if we look at the last three chapters, you'll find there that chapter 11 is all about the faith chapter. It's the faith chapter. It's all about the, the, the heroes of faith. Actually, in chapter 12, then, there is a lot, a lot of spoken of hope. It's the hope chapter, and then chapter 13 is the charity or love chapter. Paul did say in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, And now abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. So we often call 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter, but we certainly have a parallel chapter, if you please, or a commentary of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 here in Hebrews 13. Or we could say vice versa, Hebrews 13 is a commentary of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, I believe this gives evidence, too, that the Apostle Paul could very well have been the writer. That's what I believe. Although there is uh, agreement of these principles throughout the Scripture, because ultimately the author of the Bible is the Holy Spirit. But this chapter begins the practical portion of the epistle, and the writer is insisting that the Christian life is a better life. I hope you all agree with me about that. Uh, He has emphasized over and over to his readers that Christ, in Christ we have a better mediator. We have a better high priest. We have a better covenant, a better rest. We have better sacrifices and numerous other ways in which the new covenant is far superior than the old. It also demands better living on the part of its disciples. Now, you might say, well, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Yes, that's true. But don't you think that if Christ has done so much, so much more for us than for those in the old covenant, how our gratitude should surely result in better lives, a more circumspect, a more careful walk in holiness than those who were under the law? It really should go without saying. Now the key is the opening verse of our text here in chapter 13. It says, let brotherly love continue. Never let love fail. Love is the controlling factor. It is the stabilizing influence. It is the working motive in everything connected with the Christian life and experience. It was the standard given by Christ so that the world might tell that we are disciples. The world will know that we're His disciples by our love. Love is the heart and the soul of duty, of doctrine, of discipline, of service, of separation, of everything. If I go back to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and have not charity, 
I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I should remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So love is one of the things that cannot be shaken. That's what the writer referred to back in chapter 12 and verse 27, where he said, And this word yet once more signified the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, and then those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Love is one of those things that cannot be shaken. You know, it never ceases. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says, Love never faileth. Fashions go out of style, but love does not. The car that you are driving is falling apart. Do you know that? It's deteriorating. It's usually accelerated one week after the warranty expires. But not love. Love never gets, is out of uh, fashion. Love never faileth. Textbooks. Young people going to school, you probably get some new textbooks or something, some, some, some books to read. Now, they are, they, many of them become outmoded. The problem is so many textbooks are being rewritten and history is being rewritten. And uh, so uh, what you learned last year may be outdated this year. But you know what? You know, it's one of the things I always hated about teaching history was every year they added another year of history. And I never could get clear through from way back in the uh, Europe all the way up through the present day. Because every year they kept adding another year. It was hard enough to get through all the material anyway. But you know what? Love never fails. It never gets outdated, never gets outmoded. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Now, as we conclude this chapter, we're going to find three areas where love is is to control us, and we're going to look at the first one tonight. And that is unfailing love in daily duty. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. It says, let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. 
Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Here are six ways, at least six ways, that love is exhibited in the daily Christian life. First of all, love for the brethren. It says, let brotherly love continue. Brother love is literally what it says. Brotherly love, brother love. It's the word Philadelphia here. We know that uh, the city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania is called the city of brotherly love. Has nothing to do with the people in Philly. If you've ever been there, you probably realize that and how they act. But it is the meaning of the city's name. Now, this is Philadelphia. This is uh, brotherly love. It's not agape. It's not God's love. It comes from the word filio or fondness, tender um, affection. The word for brother is Adelphos, a brother. That's part of Philadelphia. You get it there. Adelphos, a brother or a near kinsman. Back in chapter 7 and verse 5, uh, we looked at that uh, uh, many months ago, but uh, back in chapter 7, verse 5, And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. It describes the sons of Levi. It talks about their brethren, though they come out of the loins of, of Abraham. And the application is that we have a common origin. We have a common birth. You say, well, he's from such and such family and I'm from this family. We're not, we're not related. If you know the Lord, if you both know the Lord, you're related. You see, we have a common origin, a common birth in our, uh, in our salvation. We're born of the Holy Spirit of God into the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, it says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. What a testimony it is to those outside of our church when we show love for one another. They know that we are the Lord's disciples. First John 2, 10 and 11 says, He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whether he goeth, because of the darkness hath blinded his eyes. You see, these Hebrews had love for one another. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 6, and verse 10, where it said, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now he says, let that brotherly love continue. I like to illustrate it this way. Like a triangle. And we have, on the one hand, we have us, me, and on the other hand, we have others. And as 
we both love God more, see what happens to our relationship as we love God more. We get closer and closer together. Okay? But we've got to love God. You've got to love God. I've got to love God. And as we love God, our relationship will get closer and closer together. The closer we get to God, the closer we get to one another. The Christian life is a life of faith and the love toward God and toward others. Let brotherly love continue, he says. Secondly, there's a love toward strangers. In verse 2, it says there, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I read a story of a, pa- a, pre- a pastor who preached one Sunday on the theme, Recognition of Friends in Heaven. That was his theme. And this question had intrigued most every Christian at one time or another, I think. Will you recognize one another when you get to heaven? Will you recognize your friends? Well, he finished. He was shaking hands with people at the door, and there was a young gentleman that came up to him and said, Pastor, that was an excellent message, but I wish that sometime you would speak on recognition of friends on earth. You see, I've been attending this church for six months now, and no one has spoken to me yet. What a shame. I trust that will never, never happen at Spooner Baptist Church. And I hope no one goes away, whether they're a visitor or a regular attender, without receiving a greeting or even a word of encouragement from someone else in the church. That's our duty. That's our responsibility. Love toward one another. Now, this is speaking of a good old-fashioned hospitality. We can at times be so concerned about our lives and our agendas that we forget to show hospitality to those who uh, may be strangers. Maybe we have visitors or someone we never met before. Now I realize that we live in an age where we can be suspicious of others, especially people we don't know. And yet the writer tells us we never know how we might be blessed or how someone Uh, or how they might be blessed in us. This idea of angels certainly was not foreign to these Hebrew Christians who knew about the experiences of Abraham and of Lot and of Gideon, others who had entertained angels without always being aware of their identity. And yet we would not be wrong to interpret angel in a broader sense as a messenger or a minister of God. Someone that God sends along for a purpose in our lives. So we're to have love toward the brethren. We're to have love toward strangers. Thirdly, love for those who suffer. Love for those who suffer. Verse 3, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them that, which suffer adversity and being yourselves also in the body. Here's a further responsibility to the Christian and that we're to have a sympathetic, uh, even visitation of prisoners. That sounds like a great idea. Let's have a prison ministry, right? <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd get at least, at least one amen there. You know, Christians are not so imprisoned were to consider themselves as one of the afflicted brethren. If we turn back uh, to Matthew 
chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, you can turn there with me if you please. I'm going to read verse 34. Matthew 25, verse 34. It says, Then shall the king say unto them, On his right hand come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we an hungered and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of my these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Now, a jail ministry, a prison ministry, certainly falls under these this verse, I believe. Thankful for those who are involved in this particular ministry, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind if some other people were involved as well. But this could also mean visiting and encouraging those who are imprisoned by sickness or physical suffering as well as those in spiritual need. You see, God wants us to rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. So we are to love those who suffer. Now we go on in this chapter 13 of Hebrews and see love for our spouse. Now we're commanded in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, men, husbands, love your wives. I don't know of a specific verse where it says wives love your husbands, but I think that's a given. It seems like the the wives do love, but the men sometimes have a hard time doing that. So God gave us a verse, men. Husbands, love your wives. Here in verse 4, he says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. The writer is speaking here of a Christian attitude toward marriage. And that it should be one of purity and of faithfulness. The institution of marriage is of divine origin. It's to be held uh, uh, to be honorable by all. We live in a time when marriage is rarely held to be a sacred thing that it's meant to be. I heard of one movie star that suggested marriage should be abolished. Surprise, surprise, huh? Another suggested, well, make it a five in five-year increments, and then you decide whether to renew or not. Like, uh, you know, a license. Renewing your license. You either dissolve it or make it, a, uh, make it another five years. Well, that's not God's plan. There's nothing in the Bible that would suggest that that was what God would want. You see, God's Word teaches us that marriage is one man for one woman for one life. And listen, young people, there's nothing wrong with a young man or a young lady keeping themselves pure. There's nothing wrong with a young man or a young lady uh, to expect their future mate to be pure. That's what the Bible teaches 
For a husband and wife to have children has been ordained by God, and all those who would have such a relationship outside of marriage are going against God's Word. And the violation of the marriage relationship is a sin in the sight of God. And those who are guilty, God will judge, he says here. Now, we could spend a long time on this subject, but just let me say that even though God hates divorce, he does not hate the person who is divorced. Divorce may have been a part of your life. But you know what? God still loves you. And he wants you to know he still loves you. Yes, there are consequences of divorce, but God is not going, is not going to uh, throw you in the trash heap. He still loves you, and you can still have a life that is used of God. But God will judge those who treat marriage lightly. Let's go on to number five. Love without covetousness. This is verse 5 and 6. It says, let your conversation be content, or excuse me, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee so that ye may, we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man will do unto me. Now often we quote the last part of verse 5. The Lord will never leave thee nor forsake thee. But notice again what it says at the beginning. You know, we're uh, to be free of covetousness. That is, not money-loving. There is a right use and there is a wrong use of money. God says, don't be a money-grabber. That is, one who puts the almighty dollar before almighty God. He may never make you a millionaire, but he will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. The God who owns the cattle on a thousand year, uh, hills is, is your father. He said, but I don't have very much money in the bank. Well, God does. Money may be used properly by those who are faithful stewards of the trust which God has committed to them. Money can also be abused by those who make it an end in itself and a means to an end which do not glorify God. Covetousness is a sure sign of discontent and it implies a lack of trust in God. I recently read a story of an evangelist who was conducting a meeting in Minnesota, of all places, during World War II. So that's before some of us times. Some of you may remember World War II. I don't. But if you were alive during that time, or you read your history books about those days, you know that the factories connected with the war effort were running day and night, and one of the church members came up to the evangelist and he complained, Preacher, you're bawling us out for nothing. I work ten hours a day. I can't come to a prayer meeting. I have a hard enough time coming to preaching services. Well, the preacher wisely let him vent his anger until he had run his course, and then he asked him, Brother, if they were paying you for eight hours, would you still work ten? Immediately, the fellow said, No, no way. 
And then he realized how the preacher had trapped him. And he quit his yelling because he was not working for Uncle Sam. They may have fooled others, but one has to get up mighty early in the morning to fool God in any fashion. They weren't working for patriotism. They weren't working to win the war. That was all secondary. They were working to make dollars. But they were paying for it all and continued to pay because their children grew up without God and there was a disaffection in the family and they lost their religion, they lost their health, they lost everything else. And for every dollar they made, they had to pay a hundred in agony and tears and pay for the fact that they did not seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. He says here, be content with such things as you have. The word content carries the thought of sufficiency and a peace that what we have will meet our needs. Why be content with what we have? Because all the vast sources of and the resources of Almighty God are behind us, supporting us, and available to us. And then we come to verse 7. He says, love toward spiritual leaders. And although... We recognize there is one high priest, Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, the Christian exhorted to give due honor to God's servants who have placed in position of responsibility in the local church. Now, I'm not trying to toot my horn here. I'm trying to preach what the Word of God says. I'm not telling you to love me. God is telling you to love me. I'm not telling you this. God is telling you this. As your pastor, I'm so thankful for those in our church family who have shown themselves to be faithful to the Lord and this body of believers. I'm thankful for the measure of support that has been given to me as your pastor for now almost five years. Wow. Put up with me for that long. Now the scripture makes it clear that I'm not to be a pastor who lords over the flock. And there is an aspect though of rule, he says. There is the word here, rule. God has placed me in a ruling position, not by commands, not by dictates, but by preaching the word of God. My desire as your pastor is to clearly proclaim the word of God. And proclaim it in such a way that we as a body of believers may be all that God wants us to be and do all that God wants us to do. The Bible is our basis for faith and practice. And the pastor is to faithfully preach and teach the precious principles and precepts of the Word of God. So I appreciate your remembering me in your prayers. And we both need to realize that I have a great responsibility before God. I don't take that responsibility lightly. I want you to know that I'm not trying to lead you on a whim or a personal agenda, but my desire is to be true and faithful to the Word of God and lead you accordingly. Now let me remind you as well, this means that members of a church should also not be operating on a whim or an agenda. Back when I was pastoring in another state, I heard about a fine Bible-believing work that had been established, and when, for some reason, the pastor left, the church split. I think I know of a church going through this right now here in our own state. Well, 
Then a good man was brought into the second church, and a fruitful ministry continued there, but it didn't last long because there were two deacons who had their own agenda. They wanted to control the pulpit, so they ran him off. That church soon declined and split, and a third church was formed. And sadly, this is the kind of thing that's happening across communities all across our land. Either a preacher or a people have their own agenda instead of God's agenda. And it ends up with nothing but heartache and loss of testimony in the community. So let's continue to work together in love and in faithfulness to God's word. Well, we're going to stop there tonight. We're just getting through this first point of this chapter. But the first area where love is to control us is in the unfailing love in daily duty. It's seen in love for the brethren, love towards strangers, love for those who suffer, love for your spouse, love without covetousness, and love towards spiritual leaders. Let's pray. Father in heaven.